Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, who's currently a writer in residence at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre of Hong Kong University. This month, we're coming to you from a studio there. As always, we're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Kong has slid out of the international headlines lately, but the quiet repression that followed the umbrella movement has continued, more or less unnoticed by the outside world. In 2014, an estimated 1.2 million people, almost one in five Hong Kong people, took part in this occupation of some of the city's most important commercial roads. They were calling for more democracy, a greater ability to choose their own leaders. It lasted 79 days and led to an outburst of political participation, especially among the young. But it also revealed real generational political divides. That's the sound of one of the anthems of the movement. Do you hear the people sing from Les Mis in Cantonese? Today we're joined by two leaders of the movement: sociology professor Chan Kin Man, just retired from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, who was one of the three who originally came up with the idea of Occupy Central with Peace and Love, a non-violent campaign of resistance. We're also joined by Nathan Law, a student leader who, at just 23, became the youngest legislator ever for the Demosisto Party. He served for nine months before being disqualified in July 2017 by a Hong Kong court. In one of the first cases to be heard, Law was sentenced to community service for unlawful assembly and incitement to take part in assembly. However, three years later, a Department of Justice review led him to be re-sentenced to eight months in prison. This was appealed, and after 69 days, Law and two other young activists were released on bail. Welcome to the program. Let's start with talking about jail. Nathan, you've served a 69-day sentence, yes. and、um, Kinman, you're looking at jail time for your role in the Umbrella Movement. That could be announced in April. Nathan, how formative was that experience of going to jail for you? Well, I I think of it as a contemplation for me because,、um, well, the a lot of people going to jail and they feel pressured because sometimes they're guilty about what they have been. Doing and what have done wrong, but for me, I don't have that feeling because、uh, the things that we are fighting for and the nonviolent way that we conducted our like peaceful assembly was not a shame. Was not something that I should be guilty of. So when I got into jail, I I actually felt kind of relieved on 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 some perspective because I don't think I'm um I was guilty of something wrong, but rather I'm committing myself. I'm committing myself into. The belief of、um, civil disobedience and getting myself into the belief of、um, fighting for democracy. So I think that that is something that I I think is quite different from the others. How was your、um, relationship with the other prisoners? I mean, how how were you treated while you were in prison? Well, I think it was quite peaceful actually, because I, I'm sure that the correctional service、uh, department is taking. Extremely careful for us because they they don't want any like news like releasing saying that we're being like kind of treated unfairly inside. So I think I was kind of、um, monitored twenty four seven in the prison. So I, I think from the perspective of security, I I, I was quite sure that、um, we will be fine for for the political prisoners, but. Well, if you're talking about the relationship with the, the other prisoners, I think really depends on、uh, where they where where they're located or、um, well、uh, who who they will be、um, allocated in the in the same cell. But for me, I think it's quite good because, well, to be very honest, a lot of them are like gangsters, but they're not that kind of person that will hate you, saying that oh you're a betrayal, you're you're kind of like enemy of communist party. No, that that. The, one of the very unique characteristics of these cancers is that they are very realistic, very pragmatic. So if if they are like hang out with you and they don't talk about these ideological theories or or, or thinking, they they just try to like get through the lives in in prison. So I think 
I've got a peaceful time in in, in the present. So, I mean, what kind of advice do you have for Kim Man? <laughs> oh, actually, I don't have any because Kim Man has been like mentors for a lot of us. I think instead of advice, I think luck is quite important because when you get into the cell, if you are in a, like a big cell, for example, a room of 20, then you really need to like get along with the others. But if the others, they have some like paranoid about you, then I think that will make your life harder. So I think rather than advice, I think luck is more important. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, Man, you've, you've quit your job saying that you want to travel light into the trial. Mm-hmm. And, and when you left your university, you gave an extraordinary three-hour farewell speech to a, a hall that was overflowing. Mm-hmm. Um, you drew on Mandela and Thoreau, Chinese thinkers like Wei Jingsheng and Hu Ping and Habermas as well. How is this period of casting off your attachments and deep contemplation of your actions um, preparing you for time in prison? Well, I guess I have read a lot of uh, letters and books written in prisons even when I was a young man. So it seems that I have been prepared for this for quite a while. Uh, I guess it is almost like a must for uh, society to go through this when fighting for democracy. Some people have to um, show their commitment to the community that democracy is so important that they uh, will be willing to go to jail. So it's part of the struggle to me. And uh, I don't know whether I have luck or not, uh, but um, I have a lot of friends in China who have been jailed and even tortured. So to me, compared to these friends in mainland China, I'm, I'm sure we will be well, well treated in, in Hong Kong. So I'm really not afraid uh, about the situation, I mean, the jails uh, in Hong Kong. Beforehand, I, I thought that I would spend time to do reading and writing if I have to go to jail. Now I, I have changed my mind. Uh, I guess um, I have to live here now. And I would rather spend more time to listen to the story of the co-prisoner and see if I can do anything for them, in fact. This is what I, I'm going to do. So it's not just a time for me for do meditation, reading, writing. I hope that I can learn something from these people when, if I have to go to jail. And, and how long are you expecting to, to be in prison for, if you're allowed to say? I, I, I don't really know because um, the situation is very uncertain. Um, even though the Court of Final Appeal had made a ruling uh, regarding Nathan and Joseph Wong case, that as long as you act out of conscience, as long as you are nonviolent, you shouldn't be sentenced to jail. But even making, after making this uh, ruling, in the lower level court, we still witness people involved in umbrella movement would be sentenced to jail. Right before our trial, a 70-something-year-old man in fact, he was a homeless. He was sentenced for four months of imprisonment because of his involvement in the movements. So it was not very consistent in terms of the sentencing. So to me, it's very difficult to, to predict, particularly at the lower level court. Uh, we have confidence um, in the court of final appeal. It seems that they have made a more sensible decision but uh, in, in the low level, uh, we will see it. I really need luck for this. <laughs> and I mean, some of the charges that you're facing are quite extraordinary, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. uh, nine of you on trial. So you and the two other organisers of Occupy Central, Benny Tai, who's a law professor here at HKU, and the Reverend Chu Yu Ming, who I believe is 75 years old. Yeah. You've pleaded not guilty to conspiracy to cause public nuisance inciting others to cause public nuisance and inciting others to incite others Mm -hmm. to cause public nuisance. I mean, what is incitement (laughs) to incite? I don't even understand what that means. I myself want to know. um, The purpose of civil disobedience is not to destroy rule of law. So we have prepared to shoulder our legal uh, consequence by having this kind of, you know, offence. Um, I mean, in terms of, say, for example, uh, participating in unlawful assembly. For this kind of offence, offense, we are not going to defend ourselves. But now they are having very peculiar charges, as you have mentioned. 
uh, particularly the uh, inciting other to incite other. Uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, you couldn't find even one precedent case in Hong Kong or in other parts of the world. And in Australia High Court, it was already ruled that a charge like this is unconstitutional. And so to us, it is a very uh, it is horrible um, um, a charge just in order to increase the penalties. Uh, it will greatly encourage our freedom of speech, our freedom of assembly, once our case is uh, established. So it's not just for ourselves, it's also for the rights of other people, particularly the civil rights in, in, of other people in Hong Kong, that we need to defend ourselves for this charge. And secondly, um, using public nuisance is something also unacceptable. When, if they charge us for, say for example, um, participating in an override assembly, it's only about procedure that we violate some uh, administrative procedure within a pie and then we join the movement. When they use public nuisance, it defines the nature of our movement, that we create unreasonable disturbance to public. To us, we were not unreasonable. It's the government who was unreasonable because they broke the rule that people couldn't join us in the government headquarters. You know, it's a spillover effect. At the end, they have to go down to the main road. And because of the tear gas attack, then it aroused even more people. So if, if, if there any public nuisance, it was caused by the government, but not the organizers. And, and Kinman, in your trial, out of the nine um, people who were on trial, you were the only one um, to, um, to testify. And, and defense lawyers normally counsel you shouldn't testify yes. because of the danger of incriminating yourself. Mm-hmm. But in court, you said you wanted to speak out because um, it was important in terms of the long-term effects um, on, of these charges on freedom of speech. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, um, I choose to give testimony in the witness box because if we don't do it, uh, then we only have one version of the story, that is the government version, saying that we were creating public news. And so we believe that it is our responsibility to, to retell the story, to restore history. Um, so even, in fact, I have opportunity to, to leave town, um, to even seek for something like political asylum. Uh, in fact, I cut some offer like this. I believe that uh, I have a responsibility uh, to go to court, to, you know, to, to tell the community again what was the rationale behind our movement, who was really uh, the one who incited people to take to the switch. So I want to restore history. I mean, Nathan, you were one of Hong Kong's first political prisoners, right? Uh, I mean, do you see that kind of historical kind of precedent uh, that sort of uh, symbolism is important. Well, I think like before our case, I think that the like long hair has been into jail, and a lot of our like um, fellows and, and and colleagues in in democratic movement has been through this process. So, so like, long long hair is a legislator, long Kwa Kong. Yeah, and as Kim Man said, it's not comparable to the ways the Chinese government dealing with the human rights activists in mainland China. So I think. Like for now, um, for a lot of us who ha- had faced uh, this kind of imprisonment or who will face the imprisonment, we, I think we, we have that calmness because of uh, the different treatment. And a lot of uh, like the Chinese activists are actually our idol to learn, for example, Liu Xiaobo, how they face this kind of torture with uh, a very steady mind and a very uh, tenacious attitude. So I think... Like for me, I I don't see myself as a one of the like so-called earliest political prisoner, but I think I'm a learner from a lot of great people in the history. Mm. I mean, you're comparing Hong Kong's position to sort of Chinese political prisoners, but there is a difference. I mean, after all, Hong Kong is still supposed to be a common law system with free and fair courts. And yet, <laughs> I mean, we have also seen this long list of charges laid against people who took part in the Umbrella Movement. I believe if you count until March, we've seen 48 legal cases against 32 different pro-democracy leaders and activists and 16 sentences already handed down. I mean, judging by your experience, how free and fair do you think Hong Kong's courts are now? 
Well, Hong Kong is like a dual city now. Like for the economic side, it it remains very um healthy legal system, and people doing business here are very confident about our legal system. But on the other hand, if it's about political, then the court is actually under huge pressure because uh, the power of reinterpretation of our constitutions is lying on the hand of the Beijing government. Uh, so I, I think as as the judge, they will. They'll feel the pressure. Like try to imagine if you're a judge, then if you know that your judgment will be violating the willingness of the Beijing government, so will you hand down the judgment um, on the basis that uh, the Beijing government could easily overturn your uh, judgment by issuing another interpretation? So I think that is the source of pressure that our judges facing now uh, concerning political cases, and I think it's. Really、um, corroding our legal system. If I could throw a question, I'm not sure if, if there's even an answer to this one. But you've sort of drawn a line between political cases and economic cases that are before the courts. Isn't often that the economic also political? Certainly in China, there's、uh, you know, in terms of who who gets the spoils,、um, the economic can be very political.、Uh, have there been cases like that in Hong Kong, where there's been pressure exerted in the business sphere? Well, in China, yeah, many activists once、uh, they were cracked down by the regime. Sometimes they don't use、uh, political charges; they will just look at your account books, and usually they will find problem because there is a lot of problem in the tax system. So even NGO have to avoid this、uh, tax by doing some restructuring, and at the end they can use this to, you know, crack down on some advocates,、uh, NGO, and so on and so forth. Uh, in the case of Hong Kong,、uh, up to this moment is、um, concerning、uh, interpretation of law by Beijing is mainly related to something、uh, political and social in natures. But who knows what happened、uh, in the futures? You know, say for example, how they deal with、uh, Apple Daily. You know, they're using using economic sanction censorship. You know,、uh, by giving pressure to to、um, developer. Bank, big corporation, not to put ad uh, on uh, Apple Daily. And in these past two three days, the、uh, ex and chief executive C.Y.、Uh, Leung, in his Facebook, he attacked very、uh, small company who put ad on Apple Daily. So Apple Daily is the pro democracy newspaper、mm. owned by Jimmy Lai, who's been very、um, active in the democracy movement and also in the Occupy movement. Yeah, exactly. And C.Y. Leung just you know give pressure. By saying that this company, you know, is a source of income for this newspaper, so more and more we see that they will use economics means to deal with those political enemy in town. Well, I think the the reason why they、um, have this mentality of saying they are separating the, the the political cases and the economic environments is that、um, they always wanted Hong Kong to be another Singapore, saying that oh, you are doing doing business is fine, but not. Like political social affairs, but I think this kind of assumption has been challenged、uh, recently by,、um, especially the the U- U.S. government, because they they've they spotted that if you don't ha- really have a free environment, then it is very difficult to do business here. For example, if you are going to expel a Victor Millet,、uh, the 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 Financial Times reported that、uh, was chairing. Um, a conference for a pro-independence、um, organization at, at the Foreign Correspondents Club. Yes, and he was expelled because of that reason. So, how can we ensure the freedom of press here? And、uh, the U.S. government is actually having a strong weapon on that is the Hong Kong、uh, Policy Act, which、uh, really differentiates the、uh, economic、uh, entity between Hong Kong and China, saying that well, Hong Kong for now、uh, is. Uh, separate economic entity from China, but if the U.S. government thinks that the one country two system in Hong Kong is not guaranteed, is not operating well, they could review that. So it's kind of like com-、um, tidying up the economic situation and the political situation of Hong Kong. Of those cases that we have heard,、um, many of them, so twenty-eight of those cases were against.、Um, Sixteen pro-democracy,、uh, serving or former leg- legislative council members, including you. Six have been disqualified for oath- the oath-taking ceremony, and I think there was also a,、um, a judgment, wasn't there, by the Standing 
committee, committee about the oath-taking. I mean, I thought maybe we could just listen to your oath-taking, Nathan. Some of it's in Cantonese and is translated by an interpreter. This sacred ceremony has become a tool of the authority trying to bend public opinion. You can even destroy this body, but you will never imprison my mind. I will go through the necessary procedure, but it doesn't mean I will bend and bow to absolute authority. Hong Kong people will always be our target of service and unity. I will never bear allegiance to the powers that be that kills the people. I will use my conscience to defend Hong Kong people. So those were the words that you said before your oath-taking, yes, yes. quoting uh, Gandhi. And you were accused of adding words and adopting a tone of voice that expressed <laughs> doubt or disrespect to the status of the People's Republic of China as a legitimate sovereign. I mean, now you think back on that, do you regret that act? Well, I think the problem lies on the reinterpretation because that oath-taking was actually approved by the president of the Legislative Council and I served for nine months. So I think that is the evil nature of the reinterpretation is, is that it grounds the MPCSE, the Beijing government, the retrospective power to really bend any rule as they like and in order to trap the pro-democracy fighters inside the system. So uh, if you take a closer look into the reinterpretation, and it was issued, I think, in November. I, I took the oath uh, in October, and it, it was issued in November. And it regulates the oath-taking before uh, November, which covers actually starting uh, all the oath-taking starting from 1997. Because the, the meaning of reinterpretation is that, well, uh, that regulations... Um, was already there. Well, when people didn't follow it, it's because you understand it wrongly. So the the Beijing government says that oh the 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 meaning of uh, that of taking as uh, being um, well kind of misunderstood for the past like twenty something years, and they reissue a reinterpretation to make it clear. But actually, it was directly amending our our our, our laws concerning the regulations of the oath taking. So actually, if, um, well, back in the time when I took the oath, I was actually following every bit of the instruction and I've consulted um, legal opinion beforehand. It was actually a tradition of Hong Kong legislators to speak up before they took the oath. Like Long Hair has been doing that, I think, for two or three terms beforehand. So I think... The Beijing government has been abusing the power of in, in reinterpretation, destroying our um, tradition in our council in order to trap the pro-democracy fighters. And I think that's actually kind of a backdoor of our legal system that grounds the Beijing government to putting their dirty hands into us. So, I mean, one argument I've heard is that um, although the Occupy movement was well-intentioned, its legacy has been worse for Hong Kong in that it's led to political divisions, um, these disqualifications, and it's left the pro-democracy camp much weakened um, in the Legislative Assembly. So a question for you both, I'm starting with you, Ken Man. What do you say to critics that raise this argument, and, and what do you think is the lasting legacy of the Umbrella Movement? Well, think about what happened after the 1967 riot in Hong Kong. The British colonial government then uh, have an investigation into the case. And the end, uh, they, um, in fact, opened up more the system by providing more social service, building more public housing, and at the end, even established the ICAC, the Independent Commission Against uh, Corruption, because they found that it's not just the Beijing people who were involved in the riot, but even young people, a lot, a lot of young people, was also involved in it. So they need to reform the system in order to deal with the uh, deep-seated problem in the communities. That was the choice made by the British government after a riot, after the movement, I mean the unbattled movement. They need to further tighten up the grip 
in terms of civil rights, in terms of disqualifying this pro-democracy legislator. It was a deliberate choice by Beijing, and I'm sure it was a wrong choice. Now, young people, of course, you, you will find that they are very quiet because they were tired, they were frustrated, but who knows what happened in the future? I, I mean, what happened in the past two, three years have ingrained in their mind the nature of this authoritarian regime. And I believe that some of them will be even more determined in the future to fight for their own right, fight for democracy of our town. So um, let's see, let's wait and see. I will not make too hasty a conclusion for this. Well, I think that the, the blame is quite unfair because, um, to be honest, the democratic movement in Hong Kong is, is not a proactive one. We are more more like a reactive one. The reason why we had occupation was because the the Beijing government is turning a blind eye on onto the demand of democracy, and they issued a the white white paper saying that they have full control in Hong Kong, and it aroused anger from the Hong Kong people. The Beijing government turning a blind eye on the demand of democracy is actually wrong, and the way we fight for democracy with a long violent gesture and civil disobedience is definitely justifiable in this circumstance. So I think the deficient is actually created by the Beijing government because they don't respect Hong Kong people's um, demand for core values, for our freedom and for democracy. We are the ones who are pointing this out. But I think the problem is they're not respecting our demands and, and that's what creates division, what creates unrest in Hong Kong. So if the regime uh, take this opportunity to open up the system, in fact, it will in fact create a kind of solidarity after this crisis. I guess they missed this chance. The, I guess they are the one who really divide the community by not responding to the call from the people. I mean, you talk about the young people being tired, and I guess there's also a cautionary tale in, Nathan, your experience that young people see that political participation can be dangerous, that, you know, if you step forward and try to work within the system, the system then turns against you and eats you, basically. I mean, how do you think, as a young person, is there a way forward now? Or, I mean, it seems that uh, I read a survey the other day that said 50% of Hong Kongers between 18 to 30 want to leave. Uh, Is that going to be one of the you know one of the big problems that we see now that Hong Kong is basically disappearing it's a sad reality that actually there are a lot of my friends they're thinking about like leaving Hong Kong and some of them indeed did it but I think um, for a lot of us the idea of seeing Hong Kong as our hometown is actually planted into our hearts for our previous generations, we always say that um, Hong Kong is a ruthless city, that people come and go and make money and like kind of they don't care about anything in Hong Kong. They just care about climbing up in the society and just making money and get investment and then leave when they are rich. But I think for a lot of us, we've been growing up here and our, our roots is actually... Um, deepened in this society. So I think a lot of um, these quietness in the current states is actually, they are so frustrated. But I think social movement is is kind of like um, a, a cycle. When we are in the lows, then we will go up. And I think I'm not very, very frustrated about the current situation. I think one day people will will be like energized and will still keep fighting for Hong Kong. Uh, I know that in Sweden, there is a very strange illness among the refugees' uh, children. That illness is called vaccination uh, syndrome. That after years of waiting for, you know, uh, having uh, you know, approved to stay in Sweden and then fail, some children couldn't face the realities and then they stopped talking stop moving, stop taking food, and then in a form of coma. And only uh, when the government, based on humanitarian reason, that we're granting this family residency, then these children started to resume consciousness and then go back to life. In a way, it seems that for many young people here, 
they also have this kind of vaccination you know, syndrome that they have been hoping for democracy for so long. And then, you know, the, the reality is so hard to take, you know. We don't really see um, the future of democracy, particularly in the near future, uh, when Xi Jinping is still the president of uh, China. Uh, but I hope that these young people could take a longer-term perspective uh, to, to understand that it always takes time or even years or ages, you know, to fight for democracy. You now, in South Africa, you know, it takes decades to succeed. In, even in Taiwan, also take decades to succeed. And many people have to sacrifice during that period of time. And so I hope that these young people can have this uh, longer-range perspective to understand this is something we have to go through. Are you worried that these controls on the press, on newspapers, mean that, like Tiananmen in China, the collective memory of the umbrella movement will be undone because it's not really talked about in the press that much? Exactly, because um, some scholar with official connection in Beijing after the umbrella movement they believe that the reason why we have this movement is because some elite intellectual had intoxicated the minds of younger generation for years. And so they started to tighten up grip on university, and I'm sure it will be on high school and primary school very soon by changing some curriculum, including, say, for example, liberal studies. They really want to set these subjects because they believe that it has changed so much critical mind in Tang, and also introduce again uh, the national education. So I'm really worried that in the future, how the story of Umbrella movement would be told through this system. So I need to keep the record straight by going to court, at least to make a official record in court, how we understand the movement. Nathan, for younger people, I mean, a lot of the collective memory of your generation is online, on Instagram, you know, uh, in social media. And surely this is uh, beyond the control of governments and newspapers. I mean, do you really think that the sort of the collective memory of the umbrella movement is is at risk in today's Hong Kong? Well, I think indeed, um, because when I met with the freshmen in the university who are born in the year 2000, when the umbrella movement happened, they were only 14, uh, at age that, like at, le- at least for me, don't really care about what's happening in the society. They don't care about like their friends and, and um, the dinner and so on. So I think it's reasonable that if they were not told by the others about the stories of umbrella movement, they, the, the memory will die down quickly. So I think we've been, we have to um, talk about the movement more rapidly, more frequently, in order to remind them. But for now, I think the control of press is actually undoing the, the the memory of that and causing a lot of um, blockage of them accessing um, this information in terms of like a um, daily news or, or in the like radio station, unless they go to Google it themselves. Our major responsibility in terms of spreading the information of um, umbrella movement is try to use our social media wisely. So we developed a lot of uh, content in like Instagram, Facebook, in order to penetrate into the millennium and try to use the software that they understand the most to, to reach them. A lot of uh, the younger generation, because our because of our um, like advertisement or, or, or spread of information, they 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 are interested in it and even joined us. So we've got a lot of like new blood into our our, our organisation. Think about the movement and the sorts of pressures that you're under now um, compared to in the past. It seems that in the past the authorities were targeting the leaders of, of the movement rather than the rank and file. Um, but lately we've seen um, uh, Demzisto and student independence activists detained for questioning uh, while they're travelling on the mainland, and these are just rank and file. Um, Are you worried about what this says about the levels of surveillance on political activism um, within Hong Kong that this seems to indicate? Well, I think the sensitivity of uh, being an activist, no matter it's like off-ground or underground, is getting higher and higher because of the tightened group of 
the uh, Beijing government towards Hong Kong. So I think it indeed poses a lot of worries to us, especially those who have uh, like relatives or, or connection in mainland China. So I think, um, yes, indeed, the, the threat is getting higher and higher. I guess the chilling effect is already here. It's more and more difficult for college students to organize uh, the student council because uh, they will be in blacklist immediately once they take office. So uh, I guess uh, this is one of the reasons uh, that is now it's more difficult to form a student council. It's too costly for many students. And what about the situation teaching in universities? I mean, you've resigned, and I know that Benny Tai as well has had all kinds of problems, hasn't he, with his teaching? He's a law professor, but there's been questions about whether he's suitable to be teaching because he talked about independence. How can the sort of freedom of academia be protected in Hong Kong in these circumstances where there are certain ideas that appear to be just totally off limits? Well, I just don't trust the the administration in the university. Uh, looking at the case of uh, Joanna Chen, who was the former dean of Hong Kong Law School, and he was supposed to be appointed as the provide chancellor in the university. And uh, the whole search committee, in fact, unanimously agreed with the appointment, but, and then it was stopped by the council. Uh, it was clearly a case of in, uh, political interference. I, I really don't trust these um, administrations anymore. Uh, even though I, I, I didn't experience any political interference in my universities, but now uh, more and more uh, vice chancellor of the, of the university are those who have very close relationship with the government and even with Beijing. So what happened next? Uh, I'm really not sure. Uh, in terms of Benny time, I'm quite sure that if he is convicted, the university will then set up a disciplinary committee to discuss about his case, then create a reason to sack him. And in the worst case, he, they can even take away his pensions. So uh, I, I got to make a move. Um, uh, one of the reasons that I have to resign is because I have been teaching a lot of students. If I'm convicted in the middle of the term, I will create a lot of chaos to, to the student. But secondly, I also need to protect my family. They need to take out the pension. So that even if I... I, I I'm convicted, I can still protect my family. Another really worrying trend appears to be these kind of extra legal methods that we are seeing used against activists. And I believe you, you were attacked, weren't you, by four people <laughs> at yeah. Hong Kong airport. And people and, and these people were found guilty, weren't they? I mean, how much of a risk is that kind of thing now? Because it appears also we're seeing activists being trailed by reporters, people working for state-run media like Wen Weipo and Da Kung Bao and attacked. And how often does that kind of thing happen? Is it a real... Were you just unlucky or is this part of a, a new trend? Well, I think since like CYLN, our our um, former chief executive took his term, he introduced mob culture into our po- politics. Like for example, when when we were campaigning outside his like kind of uh, assembly for his election, then there were a group of um, gangsters coming out and they wearing black masks and then just freely punching those pro pro democracy protesters. Yeah, I think the attack in the airport was also one of that culture and it was um, obviously well designed and I think was organized. You, you, you never like know who's actually behind it, but this kind of like organized mob culture in Hong Kong has been growing very rapidly. Like they, they, they have a lot of people when you have rallies, they will have a counter rallies saying that, um, uh, yelling at you and, and screaming at you, and sometimes they will will have like kind of conflicts physically. So I think um, it is really a poor culture. Only authoritarian um, places you could see these kind of organized um, anti campaigns towards. Uh, these liberal and democratic rallies. And I mean, does it change the way you operate? Well, um, yes, we have to be more careful. On a daily basis, we got more um, vigilant about our surroundings. Yeah. 
I got piles of uh, letters threatening my life, some with razor braid in it. Uh, also messages in telephone saying that they are going to rape my wife, my daughters, things like this. So and, and I have been followed for quite a long period of time, particularly before the occupation or right after the occupations. Not even me, but even my, my daughter. Who so, was quite young at the time. Yeah, I, I, need, I used to send her to a drama school in, on every Saturday, and then I found that we were followed it. I'm not sure whether they follow her or follow me. So also um, some hitman <laughs> culture is developing in Hong Kong. Some gangster used to harass us during uh, fundraising events, or during um, even July first rally, you will have you have to face this kind of gangster. Um, so it happens more and more like uh, Cambodia under the military regime, you know. So that's why I feel very sad. And the other case is uh, Edward Edward Leung. Uh, there was a case that he had a physical confrontation with a reporters. So Edward no. Leung is a Hong Kong independence activist who's now serving a prison term. Yeah, he, once he had a case having physical con- uh, confrontation with a reporter, a pro Beijing reporter, Tai Kung Pao. And because he, in fact, the, the reporter provoked the confrontation by showing him pictures of his family taken by the reporter. So this is the way he, the report aroused a physical confrontation with Edward. So, you know, it's well-organized, well-planned, you know, another reporter will then take pictures of these scenes. So it's not just this against, but even some posing reporters. Now they're doing something more than they are supposed to do. I mean, thinking about this in a broader perspective, China was meant to leave things as they were until 2047, but we're seeing these sorts of things happen. We're seeing encroachments on um, the freedom of the press, the independence of the legislature, uh, the civil service, the police force. We're also seeing new infrastructure links like the high-speed rail to West Kowloon, where at the terminus the mainland law now applies. And we're also seeing things like laws to protect the national anthem and possibly even to extradite people from Hong Kong to the mainland. I mean, to both of you, is 2047 already upon us? We always say that it is not one country, it's two systems. It's like one country and 1.5 system, and we're counting down when we're approaching 2047. And I think the change is definitely quite obvious, especially in the ways that they portray China and they how to introduce the system in China to Hong Kong. And so, yes, um, the 50 years entrenched policy is definitely not applying in Hong Kong. We've been turning into a city that um, our liberty is at risk and our basic freedom and human rights are being threatened by the, um, um, the, the regime in Beijing. Yeah, it's very depressing, but it also makes our fight more meaningful. Well, in the past, when we talk about we need democracy to protect our liberty and rights, it was more theoretical. Now, I guess, to many people, it's real. <laughs> they understand more what we have been doing in the past 30 years. One thing that has changed the international calculus when you look at China is what is happening in Xinjiang, these mm. political indoctrination camps where there's up to 1.5 million Uyghurs are being held. I mean, how looking at that and knowing that Hong Kong's future is yoked to China's, how can Hong Kongers have any hope in their future as part of a, a country that does that to its own people? Well, um, I'm, I'm glad that the world is finally awakened. That um, in the past, I guess many Western countries took a strategy of engagement that uh, they believe that you do more business with China and you have more interaction with China, and at the end, it helped China to move towards liberty, democracy, and become um, one of the civilized members of the international communities. But then you find that, wow, uh, it can be a, a strong and rich China, but without respecting some universal value, like human rights, democracy, and so on and so forth. So you, you got to be awakened, and then you, know, you have to change your policy. Now it seems that many Western countries started to think about whether they need to use an encirclement strategy to make sure that China is on the right track, you know, before it becomes too strong. 
And to me, I welcome this. In fact, I'm really worried that uh, what China will bring to the world, if you if China continue this kind of model of of development, is a a a model that consuming our futures, you know, sacrificing not just labor, environment, and human values. Why should they accept, you know, a country like this to develop just like what happened in before the Second World War, what happened in Japan and Germany? So I welcome this, you know, new strategy of the world. Of course, when I say this, I'm sure they believe that I'm a traitor. And if they have Article 23, I will be in trouble again. <laughs> But I still have to say this, that help China to become a strong but civilized nation in the world is important to human race. Yes, I definitely agree. At first, people uh, thought that it was the problem for our capitalist system. But I think uh, as the year like gone by, I think people were more realized part of the reasons why de- democracy is decaying is because uh, the authoritarian regime are abusing the openness of democratic system and infiltrating, penetrating, and destroy it from inside. So it creates a phenomenon uh, of uh, the democracy dying themselves, but it's actually uh, there are a lot of kind of assistance from these uh, authoritarian regime. And I think, well, China, Russia, these are the two big giants, and they are targeting different places. Like, for example, China is targeting like Taiwan and Japan, and Russia is targeting U.S. And I think it is very important for uh, the liberal world to to really figure out the solution on how, on the one hand, we remain a very vibrant culture of freedom and openness, but on the other hand, we can have a system that could really punish those who infiltrated into our democratic system and affect our our core values. So this, I think, is a major mission for the liberal world. And like for us, Hong Kong, we could provide a lot of valuable experience because we've been experiencing the piercing of China's sharp power in terms of like our media, our colleges, our civil society, and so on. Exactly. Well, before Xi Jinping took power, I was uh, one of the people who defend the Chinese system in the sense that I believe that um, it's still in the process of opening up. Um, so I also took a strategy of engagement. I spent more than 15 years in China, helped build civil society there. But uh, since 2012, things have changed so much. And I think it's going work. And I, I also believe that other countries need to also adjust its strategy towards China's. China is just too arrogant and, in fact, it's stupid by creating this kind of, you know, re-education camp in, in, in Xinjiang and also building the uh, social credit system to be competed by um, 2020s, 2020s. This reminds so many Westerners about the concentration camp for the Jews, to, for the Jews, and also the big brother, you know, is watching you by building that social credit system. It's really a crazy system. But this becomes so important symbols of totalitarianism that finally, you know, it really helped, you know, other parts of the world recognize how dangerous China is. It looks like both of you are withdrawing yourselves from the political field for a while. I mean, Kim and you maybe have no choice in this matter. (laughs) Nathan, congratulations that you've been accepted to do a master's in Yale. Do you feel like it's an abandonment of Hong Kong at, at this moment in time? Or is it the case that people like you, you are basically disqualified, aren't you, yes, from yes. political involvement for the next five years anyway? I mean, is it hard to see what role you can play now? Well, I, I think the major reason for me to study is because I think I need to study. Well, for the past years, uh, I, I've just graduated from school after I spent six years in the university for my undergraduate degree. <laughs> and, you know, during that period of time, I've been... In the umbrella movement, I've been forming my political party. I've been a uh, legislator, disqualified and jailed and so on. You could name a lot of like major series of events in the period of undergraduate. <laughs> so you could, I think, imagine very easily how little time I could have in my study. These lessons I learned outside the classroom 
are very precious, but it doesn't mean that I don't need to ponder in the classroom in academic environment. So I think, well, for me, I've always been eager for an environment that could allow me to think freely and quietly and think a way forward. So I think I'm not avoiding anything. I, I I promised myself I will still go back to Hong Kong and fight for democracy in Hong Kong. But I think not only for me to contemplate to to think about how should we move forward. And Kinman, a final question for you. I mean, you study social movements. Are we likely to see? More social movements like the umbrella movement in Hong Kong again, or do you think that time has now gone? Um, it's a very quiet time now, but it's very natural. Uh, there's always rhythms in the movement cycle. It's good that people like Nathan can retreat for a while and then to to study, to reflect on the movement, and I'm sure people like him will come back. So I don't mind that now we have a more quiet time. Uh, I don't see any sign that people have changed their mind. It's just that they feel tired um, and they're frustrated, but it doesn't mean that they have already changed their value. And uh, we need time. It's the time to test our resilience. And for myself, um, as long as I'm not crushed by the imprisonment, I'm sure that our imprisonment will bring new life to the movement by encouraging more people to face whatever hardship we have to face during the movement. All right, wonderful. Um, Nathan, Kinman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was Chan Kinman and Nathan Law. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and please rate us on iTunes. We're on air thanks to support from the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Many thanks to Keith Richberg and Roy Chan for hosting us at Hong Kong University's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research was by Julia Bergen. Our theme tune is from Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.